Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. And today I'm joined by Andrew Parry, who's the Head of Sustainable Investment at Newton Investment Management. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Alex. Great to be back. So let's kick off this conversation, a really probably difficult place to to talk to, and that is how do you think about the comparison between market forces doing their work, capitalism doing its work versus activism and what we're seeing from a lot of asset owners and asset management, which part of the, the ledger actually is helping to do most the most change? It's a great question, Alex, and, and one that I've been dwelling on a lot uh, over the last few few months. You know, when we last talked, we discussed the concept that all our clients are activists now. I think that's great. You know, it, 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 they want their voice heard. A really important part of changing the system is to show that people really care about these matters. And then civil society, politicians, regulators really begin to take note. Leaders of the biggest companies take note. So it is part of the system change. But what seems to have been missing often in the debate is any discussion of the the financial aspect of it. It is just seen that activism is good and automatically leads to better financial outcomes. Now, of course, Activism comes in all sorts of ways. You know, hedge funds were the activists originally, really just around financial outcomes and often quite short term to to get a a, a material financial gain. And they're not really thinking about the social or environmental consequences. Now they're joining the, the party. But it's really important that we do think that activism alone won't necessarily produce the financial returns. You know, we've got to see whether the companies can really change. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how activism plays out in the P&Ls of the major oil and gas companies. And the reason I say that is not because the intent isn't good, and I'm 100% supportive of them acknowledging and being responsible for their emissions and being part of the transition. I think that's essential. But as an active uh, stop picker, I look at it from the point of view What's the risks associated with the transitions? And if you go back in history and look at big transitions, economic and business models, the reality is that a lot of the companies just don't make it. And often it's the bigger companies that struggle to make the transition because the sheer size of the capital reallocation, the sheer challenge of reorganizing a huge complex entity that's maybe been in place for you know many 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 decades and in, and integrate into a system that is rapidly changing and i think that's something that we always have to think about is that the activism also going to lead to an economic benefit because you know if you're going to be investing in these stocks you still have a fiduciary purpose you still have to make financial returns now, where it's different is if you're uh, an, an index fund, so all power to them. You know, they're going to be owning these stocks come hell or high water. They don't get judged on the performance of the individual securities or, frankly, even the total performance because it's the index. 
but that incremental addition to improve you know, this, at the system level outcomes is great. As a stock picker, it's a very different dynamic. You have to think about the business model of success and how the, uh, the activism is aligned to that. And just being greener, a phrase I've used before, is not a sufficient condition in of itself to make it for a good investment. It's interesting because when you think about activism, often it's about improving something, some change, but the change is typically sort of seen as distinct from the financial outcomes. And so to that end, you can be an activist in many, many different areas around corporates and their operations. But if every single time you're introducing something, that's actually potentially threatening uh, their returns, it's reducing their ROE. Well, who wants to invest in that sort of business? That's where the challenge, I think, lies. I think it's a point well made. You know, I think when you look at it at the total system level, the total economy benefits from the transition, you know, cleaner, cheaper, renewable energy is ultimately very good in the long term for jobs. It's very good for the environment, which supports a healthier and more vibrant world for all, which ultimately will support Yes, more sustainable economic activity, which is you know, so the system level thinking is very right, but that doesn't mean any single component or element in the system has to survive. You know, we've seen these transitions occur. You know, I think it's got analogous for when I started my career in the mid '80s into the early '90s, and I was running UK equities, and we were going through a quite a profound economic and social shift then. You know, we had the rise of Thatcherism and Friedmanism and Reaganism, you know, so the whole business community was shifting, the economic model was shifting, and society was also shifting in its preferences. A lot of companies, especially if you were running UK equities, as I was at the time, didn't make it. They did not make it through the 1990 recession. They did not make it through the transition in the business models. The ones that did and got ahead of the curve that could reallocate capital, who reinvented or had the right governance structures to be innovative, they went on to be, you know, like five baggers, ten baggers, or more in some cases. But it was very selective, and I think that's one of the challenges is in this huge energy transition that is beginning to unfold, which is going to be multi-decade, complex, and pretty messy. Not everybody is going to be a winner, and by engaging or actively, is not necessarily going to make a, com- a bad company into a good company. And I think that's something we have to remember. You know, it's just sometimes companies just won't make it. It's interesting because if we think to capitalism as a successful adaptive system, it's usually worked in helping some companies try to work out what that process is. Everyone's trying to look for new ways to grow their profits, grow their revenue, look for new opportunities. Now, if this transition was really quite simple, shouldn't we be just seeing the market actually doing its thing, capitalism working and people sort of transitioning, these corporates actually making the the process uh, or taking the process on themselves rather than having to rely on activists to, to push them? Well, I think, I think that was beginning to happen anyway. Uh, I think the activists there are uh, there as a catalyst in many cases for speeding up the process. You know, if you run an enormous corporation, inertia, to be honest, is the standard practice. You know, it, it's easier to maintain what you have rather than transitioning to something new because that transition brings risks. There is also the risk and the, well, the danger that to make that transition often requires your returns to fall 
before they rise in the future. You know, you've got a lot of written off embedded capital that needs to go into new ventures. And so you, you will have um, a J-curve effect for many of these companies transitioning. And that's the fear. And that's what creates the inertia. The companies don't want to change because the returns dip in the short to medium term, but that exposes them to long-term ba- uh, business failure. And, and that's, the, that, that's where I think the activists come in of giving a prompt. Now, one thing you haven't mentioned in this is the role of governments of setting the right incentives and disincentives in the system. You could look back to December uh, 2015 and the Paris uh, Agreement. You know, emissions have risen since then. 196 countries, I believe, signed the Paris Agreement. But there were no incentives and disincentives placed into the system to stop the free rider uh, principle. And that is one of the problems with capitalism. Capitalism needs bounds and uh, boundaries in which to, to operate and needs the right incentive structures. And I think in the debate that it's just beginning to come is really the lobbying and activism towards governments to make sure they put in place those incentives and that they're not, if you like, greenwashing by having a 2050 or some uh, long-dated target where those politicians won't be in power and they don't have the policies of the shorter term to get you there. And you really do need to change the incentive, disincentive structure to make this uh, to really accelerate uh, the transition. As you think about the incentives and disincentives, obviously what comes up is subsidies versus taxes. Um, the carbon tax didn't really work very well in Australia. It got a lot of pushback. You know, I'm curious around your thinking, what you've seen work alongside whether it's an incentive or a disincentive to actually change people's behaviour? Yeah, and we've seen in Europe trying to bring in carbon taxes in France led to protests and riots and you know, and, and this is always the problem when trying to find, you know, work out the, the balance, the short-term cost or the long-term benefits, which is always a difficult sell for politicians. It's also, as I mentioned just now, difficult sell sometimes for corporate executive boards to, to, to think in that, in, in that terms. I think if we really do want to get the scale of the transition, we are going to have to think about carbon pricing and carbon taxes in some form. We've also got the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which could very well become a mechanism. If we just leave it to goodwill, then inertia will continue to to play out. You know, the three rider principle will continue to do- dominate. And I think the problem is, is when we frame the climate debate, sometimes as always about 2050. That's a mistake because it's about 2030. Because if you have not taken the dramatic action to significantly reduce car- absolute carbon emissions, not just reduce the intensity of carbon, but absolute carbon emissions by 2030, we're well. There's no way we can make make a one and a half degree world by 2050. So the you know the reductions in carbon have to be front end loaded, and, and that's why I think we probably need some form of almost at the uh, geopolitical, macroeconomic level, some carbon competition. So make capitalism work by making sure that the incentives between nations is such that there is an incentive to actually drive down carbon. Because you know, when you think about it, when you scale up renewables, when you scale up battery technology as we will, as the material science accelerates and develops, so the unit cost of renewables should plunge. 
you know, it's been fallen substantially I mean, of, over the last 20 years, over 90% in the case of solar. So as you scale, then you begin to have huge economic benefits for a wider range of industries. That's when you can decarbonize cement and steel, really. That's when you get, get truly get green hydrogen. So all of these things will then knock on to being a real a powerful force for people in fuel poverty, the poor. For it gives energy security if you develop it well, and you know it, it can bring huge benefits to the industrial complex where energy is a big part of the input cost. But it needs that vision and the incentives, and that's where you know maybe competition is going to be the way to solve it. Um, There's a couple of things that come up when you think about the the energy complex, and and that's particularly India and China that are growing very quickly, and and the amount of of carbon they're still producing today. Uh, both are very hesitant to obviously sign up to a lot of the agreements. Uh, and so countries like Australia sort of look to them and say, well, they're not making their changes and they're the biggest polluters, so we should probably hold back. And so in this marketplace, there's almost like a, an arbitrage that can sort of go on where you can make steel in China, for example, because they can wait till 2060 uh, versus Australia that gets almost penalized if, if they do sign up. And so how do you then stop that arbitrage problem that can, can, that can arise? Well, and, and that's exactly the problem that was there with the Paris Agreement. You could head, sign up to the headline, but the, you haven't placed in the system any incentives or disincentives. Now, I know things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, you know, tax, in other words, or pricing of carbon is, uh, is unattractive. But where we are in the energy transition and the, the cost of renewables today versus where they were before, the look at the rise of electric vehicles. You know, I think you know, Ford announced the uh, that they were selling the F-150 iconic pickup truck. They took 45,000 orders in 48 hours. I think it's one of the top selling you know, products in America, you know, and they make more electric vehicle uh, Mustangs than they do gasoline Mustangs now. So look, we're at a tipping point. So there's a huge opportunity for, for governments to actually put put the right incentives in to excel to accelerate this at the moment. You know, there's a you know if you look the, ch- the situation with China and America is a big geopolitical issue of our time, and you know that that is a challenge. But it needs to be it can be seen through the light, uh, lens of climate as well as through the, the, the lens of the geopolitics of two superpowers colliding. And that's what I mean about trying to put in place incentives in the system through, you know, that can actually make competition to accelerate the development of these to be good. Now, India and China have massive pollution problems. They have a limited amount of energy security. So in the, in the, for them, in the long term, Surely it should be in their interests to decarbonize their systems, the health benefits, the access to energy for more. And, you know, if you're a manufacturing complex, ultimately those benefits, uh, longer term benefits will outstrip any short term costs. So I think the incentives are there. It's just getting people to frame them in, in the right way and to realize that they need to get pick their head up from the, you know, a three-year perspective to take a 10-year and beyond perspective. 
As you think about sustainability much broader, even outside of the carbon regime, there is a lot of other uh, factors that come up. Um, Supply chains is another one, how to deal with some of the social consequences of um, these monopolies that we're now creating. We've got a lot of issues that that are also, uh, I guess you could say, different forms of market failure. Um, You know, what role should asset owners and asset allocators really play in, in helping to address some of those those problems as well? Yeah, and in many ways, those are sort of almost more challenging than the climate the climate challenge within a portfolio context. You know, big oil and gas sector is now a very small part of the total economy. But for example, big tech are a very significant part of, of the index. So I think sometimes that you know, makes it difficult to, for people to actually address these issues. But it comes back to a point about a change. Uh, are we at a tipping point, I think? That this is something we need to think about. You know, we talk about environmental governance a lot, but the social element, and, and I would put some of these issues around antitrust, monopoly, some of the, the broader issues you took under the S bucket. And the S bucket, as we know, is one of the more, more difficult ones to, to tackle in ESG investing because it's harder to define. There's a lack of data uh, and it's a lot more nuanced. And, uh, and then there's a whole issue of cultural norms across different regions and different perspectives. But... That said, I think where we are in S is where we were on climate five years ago. So five years ago, most people were recognizing that climate change was a, a significant existential threat to, you know, to life on the planet. We, the awareness was growing, but people still talked about it when they looked at company business models as it's an externality. It's not being internalized into business models. Look at the dividends, look at the cash flow, look at the security. Five, six years later, it was a radically different story with dividend cuts, the return on capital employed falling, and the climate debate becoming hugely internalized into the business models now culminating in the rise of the activism that we talked about just now. I think we're potentially at exactly the same point with the social dimension at the moment, where we all recognize there are a significant number of social challenges, whether it be diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether it be around antitrust and quasi-monopolies, whether it's even about being just in the context of business models. But we tend to feel that, well, it's not being internalized, so we can worry about it, but it's not going to affect portfolios. I just wonder whether in five years' time, we not, might not be in the same position as we were with climate five years ago and suddenly finding that the social dimension has become much more internalized into business models. Now, you and I talked about COVID, and that could be the, the catalyst. We might not see it completely yet, but it could be the catalyst for a recalibration and a rethinking that could tip the social aspect uh, on its uh, on its axis. Well, even if you look at the demographics and the changing nature of people that are coming through the workforce, you know the new the new group that's coming through are very uh, specific on their ideals, and they've got very strong value sets and very uh, set ways of um, thinking about how the world should run. And it, that's a real challenge now for corporates as to how to then bring these people in as they do need labour. We, we're seeing a, quite a labour 
supply issue in, in the US at the moment, you know, how do you then get the right people to come into these companies and then also line up with the existing values that sit within big tech, for example, or these very large monopolies or similar style of businesses that uh, are very dominant and don't line up with people's values? And I think it's a very good point, the that difference across the generations, because the typical leadership of you know, white male and stale in corporations is beginning to change. You know, we're beginning to get these sort of people born in in the furnace of Friedmanism and you know, Thatcherism and uh, Reaganism retire, come off the board. And, and, and younger generations are coming through much more rapidly sometimes and is recognized and having a much more much more of an influence. Um, I see that in my own children in their 20s and early 30s, incredibly different values and, and approach to work and, and, and life generally. And I think that's why we could be at that tipping point, because we are getting new thinking, new influences coming through. And that's why you can suddenly find that social norms change quite quite radically. And, th- and they have been, I think, al- already. I think back, think back to August 2019, when the U.S. Business Roundtable embraced stake, stakeholder over the primacy of the shareholder. Now, a lot of people said that was a cynical marketing plug, but I, I think actually there was something more profound potentially that it, it signaled, because that was pre-COVID, you know. So, it, and it was quite early in really the move towards sustainable investing and the sort of activism we've been discussing. And I think a lot of it was that leaders of some of the very big companies in America were smelling change on the wind. They were beginning to understand that the system was going to, was about to shift and the, the, the attitudes of society was beginning to pivot. Now, they're quite polarized in many, many countries, but that doesn't mean that the whole overall balance might not might not shift. And you know, for me, it was about a signal that it was how, how do you actually remain relevant if you do begin to see shifting social norms and shifting values? And for these big companies, I think that's why looking at stakeholders was actually something about relevancy in a changing world and about how they had to in, in, innovate because there's a heck of a lot of competition uh, in, for the bigger companies coming in. So, yeah, I, I think we are at a really interesting point. You know, we're going through quite a quite an experiment and I'm, I'm sure that we'll see a change in business models emerge over the next five years. I see the same thing that, that businesses are really under threat, not only from their employees that are pushing for change, but from the members that are within the asset allocators and the asset management teams that are then also pushing change. So, these corporates and the people that run these corporates are under immense pressure from their own employees and then from their investors. And there's two very big factors that they need to always consider. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is about that system change. You know, and initially, in a system change in the early stages, it's a few voices disconnected in, in the wilderness. But as, the, as that begins to gather some momentum, so the connections and interconnections are made, and that's how you change the system. And, you know, and I think that's what where all of this comes together. If you think of it in system change, then these are the forces that will actually shift the, the system on its axis. Now, it's a big shift, so there's no guarantee of success. But it does seem to be that a multiplicity of different voices are coming 
to the fore. And that's really important because this is a multi-dimensional problem. So we shouldn't just think of it in the terms of shareholders and asset owners and the benefit. We should think about it, you know, the, the legitimate voice of people coming from NGOs and not-for-profits. We're all in, in this together. And that's why I think of thinking of it as a complex, interconnected system is the best way to, to understand all that's going on because everybody's got different objectives. But ultimately, if the object, objectives begin to have some form of alignment, that's when we can sh- shift, you know, shift the, you know, the, the system. You know, as the old Archimedes principle, give me a lever and I can, I can shift, the, you know, I can move the world. And I think maybe that's what we're having is that that's where the activism and the voice is part of the lever to shift the system. If you put your investor hat on today and you look at the marketplace and you, you think about these system changes that are coming through, does that mean that you then start to look away from some of these really large corporates because of the, the amount of stress that they're going to face from both their employees and from other asset owners, asset managers, to then the next tier down or lower tiers that are more nimble, more flexible to change, uh, less likely to also have a lot of activist-style pressure against them as well? Yeah, well, um, activists, you know, can can take place in small, medium, large, and mega cap, um, and they can be, you know, constructive. So, you know, the, the, you know, I would, I always view that our active engagement with companies is about, you know, influencing the change, but also supporting the change when it happens. Sometimes that some of the activist style hedge funds aren't there for the change. You know, we we're going to be there for the long term. Yes, I, I, I look. I'm an active fund manager, so I'm, I, I always think that you, you're judged on what you own by not what you don't own. It's always really doing the research on the stocks that you own and where you have a marginal advantage. And I, and I think the the opportunity set is is going to start to change, and people are going to begin to think slightly differently. So you know, you've got to think about where this transition is going to play out successfully and is it going to be just in in the obvious names or is it sometimes going to be in the ones that really can transform themselves that was the lesson i learned 30 odd years ago is about the power of business innovation and transformation so it's not always about the leaders and the winners it can be about the ones that are challenged but do grab the opportunity to transition and change as an active manager, your, your, your job is to navigate your clients through a world in flux. And we are in a heck of a lot of flux at the moment. Now, who knows whether any of the antitrust cases that are be beginning to bubble up in America will come to anything. In fact, for some of the very largest companies in America, if they are broken up. It's probably actually quite good for shareholders. That's the irony. If, uh, if they're split up into the component parts, it will release more value. Whether that happens or not, I, I really don't know. That's in the hands of the, of the legal system. But what it does begin to do is throw some doubts into the minds of investors about the permanency of these quasi-monopolies and then beginning to think more broadly into that small and mid-cap area. You know, And I think the small and mid-cap area is generally for the stop-picking fraternity where you go for your alpha uh, is where you go for the areas that you can incrementally add value. It's not been the case maybe for a number of years, and there are some of the problems in the system, which is why I do think that we need to consider size and create you know, allowing quasi-monopolies to exist. Is that do they actually ultimately stifle innovation rather than accelerate innovation? And again, that's part of the system change, and I think that is going to be something that will be fascinating to watch uh, unfold in the next five years. 
as an active stock picker, I'll give you the the chance to uh, you know have your say against uh, passive investors. And we do see a lot of change in the ESG space with a lot of passive indices and index tilts. And when I look at it from an outside observer, it looks very hypocritical in the way that people just become passive and then just put themselves in this index and and just leave it along those lines and and hope for the best. Um, you know, should there be something to yeah, think about an incentive for people to actually be active as an ESG investor as opposed to be somewhat passive using a, a standard ETF that rebalances based on market cap, for example. Well, I'm hugely biased in the 37 years of being an active manager. Guess what? I, I, I think active management has a real, really important role to play. I think it's a really important role to play in this price discovery and business model discovery. You know, if we have no competition for capital, if we have no messiness in the markets to find out the winners and losers that that's not actually good for the market indexation provides a simple clean access to to beta for investors it comes low cost if it comes with a big dollop of activism and voting and engagement that that's great and some of it you know but they can't engage on all twelve and a half thousand securities. So you know the good thing is they can, if if they have, if they're willing to put aside any conflicts of interest that they might feel and truly engage that, that's great. Activism is uh, active management is really about that exploration of the future. So the index community for me look is about where we are now. Really good active management is where we're going in the future, and that's the the option that it offers you. It offers you the the opportunity to say. Not all of those energy companies are going to successfully make the transition, no matter how much you engage with them, you know, and particularly as we don't run the businesses as shareholders, you know, we have an opinion on behaviors and, and strategy, but we're not doing the complex business. So, you know, we have the ability to step away and not go over the cliff with companies that won't come through the transition. And, and But it's all part of what markets are about. And we do, like everything in life, you need to find balance. There is a role for the index managers, definitely a role. Owner, and there is a role for active, truly active management. Active management has to be active. And by that, I don't mean buying and selling on a daily basis, but by being willing to step away from the index and have a different view on where the future is going to be to where it is today. And, and for me, that's why I, I still love this job after all these years. I think there's a lot to be said around um, markets and market pricing assets correctly and, and price discovery is, is a critical piece of markets functioning properly. So I think I, I really uh, enjoy you you saying that. I think it's uh, it's really a positive way of looking at it. The other area that I wanted to touch on is there's been a lot of change around the word fiduciary duty, uh, or at least the perception of fiduciary duty. I think it's in the UK that there's a change around best outcome, something along the wording that's changed. Curious to get your thoughts around why there seems to be this move away from fiduciary duty as you start to think about ESG issues. Yeah, and it's a big debate. I don't think fiduciary duty has really changed in a, when you look at the, the law, I think what the fiduciary purpose now embraces is a recognition of the, this system level thinking that we're all in this together. That if you t- if you just think about you know, because the the old way of thinking about fiduciary duty was about maximization of you know, financial outcomes, which is sort of almost like a meaningless concept, because striving for maximization of any uh, factor 
can bring enormous risks and fragility. So it was always about a concept of balance. You know, it was about risk-adjusted returns, not just maximum returns. You didn't just put it all in one security or put it into a VC fund and keep your fingers crossed that you had the one that was going to be a 10x uh, rather than the one that didn't give you money back. So, you know, fiduciary duty has always been, I think, more nuanced and bounded. It was not just about maximization of the utility of profit. It was about the way you went about generating risk-adjusted returns to meet the needs of your members. Now, as the needs of your members and the voice of your members and a society begins to change, your fiduciary duty and, and, and is going to reflect that. And, and that's how well, what I think it, it we're seeing going on is that it's not that we're there to make less money or not think about the financial needs of our members in pension schemes and can they retire financially well, but a recognition that that retirement in many cases is, is 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. And it, it's about that commission on the sustainable development. It's about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs and seeking balance between economic growth and social and environmental well-being. You know, if you think of that as fiduciary purpose, you know, that was a back from 1987. It's one of the best definitions of sustainable development, seeking balance between the present and the future and supporting economic growth through good environmental and social practice. That's a great statement of fiduciary purpose. And it is, it is about making economic and financial returns, but recognizing the, the external costs that that can bring that pose then ultimately risks to the sustainability, resiliency, and you know the fragility potentially of the financial returns. And as we've been going through the last, think of the last 15 years and the volatility economically and the challenges that we've had, well, that notion about future resiliency is, is actually really very important. We certainly don't want to have a financial crisis followed by a pandemic, followed by an environmental crisis, because that one, they seem to be getting bigger and the response is bigger. That could be really very costly to our retirement prospects. All right. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. Alex, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.